This episode is sponsored by Gentex Corporation. Gentex is a longtime supplier of electro-optical products for the global automotive, aerospace, and fire protection industries. Visit www.gentex.com to check out the latest in digital vision, connected car, and dimmable glass technologies. Hi everyone, welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm Pete Bigelow, your host. We've talked a lot on this podcast about the infrastructure bill passed last fall and its importance for building out a national network of 500,000 chargers. Now comes another piece of proposed federal legislation that could keep the EV momentum rolling along. My guest today is Levi Tilleman, Vice President for Policy and International Outreach at Ample. He is here to discuss the Inflation Reduction Act, a proposed bill of potentially staggering importance for the auto industry in particular and efforts to thwart climate change writ large. That West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin finally agreed to a framework for this bill surprised many people, but not Levi, who's been paying attention to the way industrial policy shapes technology and innovation for nearly two decades. His 2015 book, The Great Race, The Global Quest for the Car of the Future, is in my opinion, required reading. And in many ways, it's prescient in terms of where America finds itself today trying to catch up in the global competition to put electric vehicles on the road. Let's get right to it. Here's my conversation with Ample's Levi Tilleman. Levi, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here today. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to talk with you about what's happening in Washington. There are substantial developments, and that's probably an understatement. Before we get into that, you've worn many hats over the years. You've been a startup founder. You are an author. You've worked for the Department of Energy. Give our listeners a quick uh, overview of what you do and and tell us about your work at Ample. Thanks. Well, first of all, I'm currently Vice President for Policy and International Outreach at Ample. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Ample is a company that produces a battery swapping kit for electric vehicles. Uh, Battery swapping is a trend that has really taken off in China over the past two, three years. Um, China has over 2,000 battery swapping stations, and these battery swapping stations, they can swap batteries at a very, very fast rate. So it's, you know, the equivalent of maybe 200,000 high power electric vehicle chargers. Now, the thing that Ample does, it's a little bit different from the Chinese battery swapping stations, is we produce a battery swapping kit that can work for any electric vehicle, and it's not limited to a specific make or model vehicles. So um, we're working on getting the battery swapping industry up and on its feet here in the United States of America. Stepping back, I have done a number of things over the years. All of them have been unified by my commitment to working on climate change. And in climate, there are a number of different avenues that you can pursue to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. You can look at efficiency. You can look at electricity production. I decided to go down the mobility route. And so from the time I was in my early 20s, I've been working on startups. I spent some time at the Obama administration at the Department of Energy. I wrote a PhD dissertation on industrial policy for electric vehicles in China, Japan, and the United States. I've written a book and helped with a couple of other books as a co-author. 
And I've written for a bunch of different publications ranging from the Washington Post to Wired to the New Yorker on trends and uh, policy, policy developments in the clean energy, autonomous vehicle and clean vehicle space. I joined Ample from the World Economic Forum where I was setting up a program on circular economy in the um, automotive industry. So again, diverse background, but everything centered on climate change and really centered on mobility and how we can improve the climate footprints of the mobility system. What got you interested in electric vehicles in, in global electrification in the first place? You know, I think it really goes back to the fact that when I was a kid, I spent a lot of time outdoors, a lot of time in nature. I think earlier than most, I realized that there were some uh, very real environmental threats out there. I cannot remember a time when I was not concerned about the impact that fossil fuels and climate change were going to have on those ecosystems. And so when I got older, I found interesting ways to sort of flex that environmentalist muscle. In the 2000s, I had a startup company that was focusing on more efficient internal combustion engines. And the reason for that is that was during a period when we thought that the next generation of biofuels was going to provide a ample source of clean liquid fuel for internal combustion engines. It became clear during probably the late 2000s that next generation biofuels uh, were not going to come online as quickly as anyone expected. And so I shifted my focus to electric vehicles at that point. And that's really where I've stayed since. Let's fast forward to last week when the Senate unveiled the Inflation Reduction Act, which has profound ramifications, I think, for electric vehicle developments in particular and reaching climate goals overall. What's your initial take on, on after reading the 721-page proposed bill? Uh, is this a substantial step forward? Well, I would say my first take is industrial policy is back, baby, in a big way. I wrote a book called The Great Race, The Global Quest for the Car of the Future that published in 2015. And the main thesis of that book was that big innovations in heavy industries with long investment horizons require a policy catalyst to get off the ground. And what we see in the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, or sometimes people call it the IRA, so I'm going to put that terminology out there, I'll probably say it again and again, because Inflation Reduction Act is a little bit of a mouthful. But what we see in the IRA is one of the most interesting, sophisticated and aggressive efforts at industrial policy that has been made outside of the People's Republic of China in the last three or four decades. The goal of the Inflation Reduction Act of the IRA is to bring as much electric vehicle manufacturing online as quickly as possible in the United States and North America more broadly, and to provide really very aggressive incentives for consumers to purchase those vehicles that are manufactured in the North American area. I'm curious, you used the word sophisticated. Is this, uh, does this mark a, a new chapter of sorts, a more mature chapter in? in U.S. policy for climate? I would say so. And I would say it also bears the fingerprints of one of its key architects, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. 
I have spent a lot of time with Senator Manchin's office over the past 18 months. And the message coming from Senator Manchin's staffers has been very clear. The senator is very concerned about relying on China and other countries that are not necessarily aligned with U.S. interests for the battery cells that are used to power electric vehicles and the components that are used to build electric vehicles. He sees that as a key strategic weakness of the transition to clean energy. And I think one thing that has always been exciting and it's been a you know promise of the transition to clean energy is that we're no longer going to rely on world oil markets that can be very capricious. But I think Senator Manchin realized that if we're relying on China and Russia and other countries that are not necessarily friendly to the United States for the critical minerals and the components that are required to build electric vehicles, that doesn't put us in a better position than relying on the world oil market. Um, and so Senator Manchin really wanted to build a domestic EV manufacturing system that started with the precursors required to build battery cells and ended with a recycling system for electric vehicle batteries and components. And this bill takes huge strides um, in that direction. It's fascinating to read many of the things that we thought were important in building out a EV manufacturing ecosystem are represented in this bill. It is a bill that is going to require a lot of the automotive industry. It's going to require a huge amount of onshoring of U.S. manufacturing capacity. A Senator Manchin likes that because these are good blue collar jobs. But, you know, it, it could herald a massive transformation of the automotive and industrial ecosystem, not just for the United States, but for the world. Miss, stay with Senator Manchin for just a second. You've had this bird's eye view, you know, connecting with him in his office for some time. It seemed to strike a lot of people by surprise last week when, when he and Senator Schumer reached an agreement on what this legislation would look like. A surprise to you or give us an idea of what this bird's eye seat his, his, uh, looks like over the you know, months or years that you've been involved? Well, you know, it's really tough to say how clearly the senator's office understood their end game from the very beginning. That said, the messaging out of Senator Manchin's office has been fairly consistent and fairly clear. He has always said, I am not walking away from a clean energy bill. And I think that it would be important to pass a significant clean energy package. Now that said, he has also consistently over the past 18 months walked away from clean energy bills. And I think that people have been incredibly frustrated by this dynamic. A lot of people talk about Lucy with the football. I don't know if you remember that scene from Charlie Brown where Charlie Brown is trying to kick the football and Lucy just pulls it away at the last second. And people felt like that was what Senator Manchin was doing with these various clean energy bills that were uh, being brought to the Senate. But you know what ended up happening last week was absolutely fascinating. The Republican leadership basically made a threat to the Democrats that they were not going to support another critical piece of legislation 
um, surrounding semiconductor manufacturing, the CHIPS Act. And this is a you know, 50-some billion dollar bill that seeks to onshore semiconductor manufacturing to the United States. And the reason for that is that things are getting kind of dicey in Taiwan. Taiwan manufactures about 90% of the semiconductors in the world. And China has been saber rattling and, you know, they've been intimating that they are going to retake Taiwan by force or through other avenues. That would put America in a position where we have a severe reliance on Chinese-based semiconductor manufacturing. Um, so Mitch McConnell was kind of blackmailing the Democratic leadership. And he said, I'm not going to support this CHIPS Act if you pass a reconciliation bill that pursues these clean energy and climate goals that you are planning on pursuing. Now, this is a little bit arcane, but hang with me for a second. The CHIPS Act requires a clean passage through normal order, which means that it can easily be filibustered if there are not 60 some senators in support of it. And so if, if Mitch McConnell got up and he told his people to block it, it would be fairly easy to block because it needed a super majority. The IRA only requires 50 senators because it's a budgetary bill. And so it's being passed through a process called reconciliation. What Manchin and Schumer did is they basically said to McConnell that they had killed the reconciliation bill. In response to that, McConnell, he allowed the passage of this huge CHIPS Act. And then four hours later, Manchin and Schumer sort of did the Lucy with the football trick, but this time to the Republicans, they turned around and they said, you know what, that reconciliation bill we said we weren't going to do, we are going to do it. And so Manchin really pulled off an incredible legislative coup. In fact, two incredible legislative coups uh, within the space of a number of hours um, last week. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that we just don't see in Washington. You have written extensively about the IRA. Now I'll use that terminology. And there's kind of three main components of this that you think are, are groundbreaking. Can you give us a quick overview of, of those buckets? Yeah, you know, I think the first is that the IRA represents the maturation of electric vehicle policy in the United States. At the beginning of the establishment of a, a sector like the electric vehicle sector, there are going to have to be big subsidies from governments, and there's going to have to be a significant amount of inefficiency, and there's going to have to be a significant amount of deadweight loss. And in the case of the EV industry, what did that look like? It looked like rich people getting $7,500 subsidies from the government to purchase expensive electric cars. So this bill moves past that, and it only subsidizes middle and, and lower income people to purchase electric vehicles. The second big shift that we see is that this bill requires that supply chains be established in the United States of America and our direct trading partners. So uh, some of it is for countries with which the United States has an FDA. Some of it explicitly focuses on North America. Of course, that means the United States, Canada, and Mexico, all of which belong to NAFTA, which is another free trade agreement. And then the third element focuses on the sources of EV components 
and the critical minerals that goes into those components. And there are some interesting aspects of this. I think the first is that there is a whole family of countries that are called entities of concern. And this includes countries like China, North Korea, Iran, Russia. If any of the precursors, if any of the components, if any of the battery cells that go into an electric vehicle come from one of these entities of concern, they are just out. They are not going to receive any subsidies through the IRA. And then there's the other part of the equation, which is starting in 2024, there are going to be escalating requirements for an increased percentage of the critical minerals and also the components that go into these electric vehicles to be sourced from North America. And for components, that goes up to 100% um, towards the end of this decade. And for critical minerals, um, it peaks at 80% towards the end of this decade. So really interesting stuff. We're going to take a short break from my conversation with Levi for this word from this week's sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Gentex Corporation, a global technology company that supplies nearly every major automaker with advanced electronic features that optimize driver vision and enhance driving safety. Digital vision features like Gentech's full display mirror, an intelligent rear vision system that uses a custom camera and mirror integrated video display to optimize a vehicle's rearward view. Connected car features like Homelink, the industry's most widely used and trusted vehicle-based wireless control system that uses radio frequency and or cloud-based wireless control to operate garage doors, gates, home lighting, thermostats, security systems, and other compatible home automation devices. All from three buttons, smartly integrated into your vehicle's interior. And dimmable glass features like automatic dimming rear view mirrors that use sophisticated light sensors, proprietary gels, and microprocessor-based algorithms to darken the mirror to the precise level necessary to eliminate dangerous rear view mirror glare. The development and delivery of these features have improved driver convenience and safety around the world. Visit www.gentex.com to check out the latest in digital vision, connected car, and dimmable glass technologies. Now back to my conversation with Levi Tillman, Vice President for Policy and International Outreach at Ample. I'm curious, Levi, 2024 is tomorrow for the auto industry. Do you feel like the industry can ramp up uh, in time to, to qualify? I think it's going to be really tough. And I think that that actually plays into another one of Joe Manchin's goals and concerns. Senator Manchin has been a voice warning that inflation is going to get out of control if we keep pouring government money into the economy. And I think from his perspective, giving industry longer lead time to ramp up before they can take advantage of these additional government dollars is not a bad thing. From Senator Manchin's standpoint, if we have two or three years during which the subsidies aren't flowing out of government coffers you know, at a significant rate, while the local industry builds capacity, that's actually not a bad thing. In fact, it's probably a feature rather than a bug. Interesting. Curious, like in some cases, like cobalt, for one example, the supply is found in countries that 
might not be on that entities of concern list, but are also not on the free trade list. How does this work in terms of the rubber meeting the road where raw materials for batteries are found uh, in places that are not Mexico, Canada, United States? It's interesting. It's complex. And I am going to have to wait to see how it shakes out. I think we're going to see a few things happen. First of all, I would expect that this bill, you know, there's enough money and enough industrial interests behind it. It will probably catalyze a flurry of action with respect to trade agreements around the world. I would guess that there will be countries that will be much more incentivized to reach out to the United States and say, hey, we want to join an FTA with you so we can be part of this ecosystem than there would be otherwise. So that's interesting. I would have to look at some of the formulas regarding percentages for specific minerals to really understand how something like cobalt factors into the equation. There is sort of a backdoor for getting some of those materials, which is recycling. And you know, one of the other parts of this bill that I think is very well designed is that the bill allows for critical minerals that are harvested through recycling to also receive subsidies. And, and that's just good policy. We need to recapture these critical minerals. We need to recapture uh, these valuable commodities that go into building electric vehicles, and we need to recycle them so we can move towards a more circular economy in the automotive space. Recycling might be one component of this, but you mentioned before that that this bill catalyzes the auto industry to act in in perhaps uh, ways it never has before uh, to transform itself in ways that are profound. Can you elaborate on how you see the auto industry proceeding uh, should this bill be enacted? Well, it's a cost-benefit analysis. So there are a number of huge incentives for manufacturing electric vehicle components, electric vehicles, battery cells here in the United States of America. Then there are very significant incentives for people to purchase electric vehicles that have sourced their components and are manufactured here in the United States of America. And then in addition to that, you have escalating fuel economy requirements and EV ZEB requirements from from places like California and the California Air Resource Board that are pushing automakers to sell more electric vehicles here in the United States of America. So you have three really powerful policy forces that are going to drive the market for electric vehicles, but more specifically drive the market for electric vehicles that are built and sourced here in the NAFTA trade region. Really interesting, really interesting stuff. I mean, this is setting the stage for an industrial transformation that we have not seen in my lifetime. You wrote in your book uh, about China kind of kickstarting its electric vehicle industry and reaching a point where they didn't quite realize, I don't want to say what they had gotten themselves into, but just how complex and sophisticated you know, the whole ecosystem needed to be to really support that transition. Is that where the United States stands right now? That's a great question. I think that one of the challenges of this legislation is it is sophisticated, it is well thought out, it is complicated. And 
sometimes there are unintended effects when you have a really complex piece of legislation like this. My initial read is that it's smart and that it's well-designed. And we fully support passage of the IRA at Ample. And I personally, as someone who has spent a lot of time analyzing this kind of policy, I find it to be really admirable effort to accomplish a number of important policy goals. How all of these forces are going to combine and what's going to come out the other side of this complex Rube Goldbergian you know, techno-industrial policy machine. Now, that is a question that I don't think anyone is quite qualified to answer, but the constellation of forces is pushing in the right direction. You mentioned the, the consumer aspects of this. One of the most interesting parts is, is not only that the bill would extend the credit for new vehicle purchases, but there's a new component for, for used vehicle purchases. How does that branch the market beyond kind of this early adopter phase where we've been and put EVs in the hands of, of a more diverse consumer set? Yeah, it's really exciting. First of all, there are income limitations placed on both the subsidy for new vehicle purchases as well as the subsidy for used vehicle purchases. So for used vehicle purchases, those subsidies phase out. They, they are eliminated at an individual income level of $75,000. For head of household, it's $112,000. And for joint filers, it's $150,000. So, you know, those aren't, you know, really very high income levels. If you look at somewhere like California, $150,000 for a family, that is just middle class. That is barely middle class. If you look at the middle of the country, then I guess you're doing fairly well at $150,000. But, you know, I think it's a smart move. For new vehicle purchases, uh, those numbers are significantly higher. And I think part of the reason for that is most people actually don't buy new vehicles. And so if you want to incentivize the purchase of new electric vehicles, you need to target those higher income brackets of people who do actually purchase new vehicles. And, and for new vehicles, it's $300,000 for couples, $225,000 for head of household, and $150,000 for individuals. And, and there are also limits placed on the cost of the vehicle that gets subsidized. So for a used vehicle, it's $25,000. And for new vehicles, they have it divided up into two buckets for things like trucks and vans, it's $80,000 for a new vehicle. And for other vehicles, it's significantly lower. I think it's I think it's $55,000, though I have to double check that number. So very interesting stuff. A second thing, though, that, that they did is they changed the formula for that subsidy. And the subsidy used to just be based on the size of the battery. All electric vehicles that are sold today have batteries that were big enough to get the full $7,500 tax credit. But now the subsidy is based on critical minerals and components and where those components and critical minerals are sourced from. And so it's broken up into two chunks of $3,750. And whether or not you get that subsidy depends on how you're able to source your critical minerals and the components that go into the battery for your electric vehicle. Take a detour for a moment and tell you, earlier this year when gas prices started to spike, I considered buying a used Chevy Volt. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I ultimately did not was because I 
just wasn't sure about buying a a used car with a battery and I, you know, with a health or longevity left. And I wasn't sure what, what that looked like. It was a open question. So what does the used EV market look like in that context? And does that kind of get into some of your work at Ample and why battery swapping might be an attractive option? Yeah. So I, I would say, let's start with the second half of that question first. It gets directly into what we're doing at Ample. One of the challenges with electric vehicles is that the most expensive components of an electric vehicle is that battery. And the more you use it, the more you fast charge it, the faster it degrades. You could find yourself in a situation where after heavy utilization, two or three years down the line, your battery capacity is down to 60, 70% of what it was when you purchased that new vehicle. You don't know how the person who utilized the vehicle before you took care of that battery. You don't necessarily know what the capacity of that battery is because there sometimes it's a little bit tricky to figure that out unless you take the vehicle out and you test drive it in a number of different circumstances. So what we do at Ample with our battery swapping package is we create a situation where you can buy the electric vehicle, but you don't have to buy the battery. You pay a significantly lower price for that electric vehicle and then you lease the battery. And what that means is that you are not on the hook for that battery degradation. Um, the reason this is necessary is because when you swap out batteries, you are exchanging batteries. So it's kind of like Blue Rhino, where you go and you uh, get a canister for your outdoor grill from the local gas station. You don't own that canister. You're just purchasing the propane inside of that canister. We're kind of doing the same thing for EV batteries. Now, when you go to Blue Rhino, you know that that canister is gonna work and it's gonna be in pretty good shape and it's gonna function just like all of the other canisters. And that's what we're doing for EV batteries. Does the IRA have any effect one way or the other on, on that sort of novel business model or is it technology agnostic as far as you can tell at this point? That's one of the things we're really excited about with respect to the IRA. If you looked at last year's Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, or the IIJA, as people call it, it was very deterministic with respect to what kinds of technology it would subsidize with respect to electric vehicle charging equipment. The definitions in the IRA are much broader. They are much more technology agnostic or technology neutral as sometimes we say. And that's a really good thing because today's model of electrification works really well if you are an affluent suburbanite who can charge at home and doesn't really have to charge at a public location very often. But if you're someone who doesn't have that electrified garage, if you park on the street, if you travel long distances and have to charge on the road, it doesn't necessarily work very well for you. And if you look at the vehicle miles traveled in America today, probably, you know, maybe half a percent of those vehicle miles traveled are electrified today. We need to get close to 100% of vehicle miles traveled being electrified. So we need to increase the number of electric vehicle miles traveled by almost 200 times. And 
One thing I can promise you, I can't predict the future, generally speaking, but one thing I can promise you is that the technologies that got us to half a percent electrification today are not going to be the same technologies or business models that get us to 100% electrification in 10 or 20 years. So from that perspective, this technology neutrality is really important. It brings up a kind of a bigger picture question. Is this bill too auto-centric? And to achieve climate goals, do we need to shift some of those vehicle miles travel that you talked about to, to other forms of transportation like micromobility and and then the follow-up question to that would naturally be, should there be credits in this bill for things like e-bikes and e-scooters? Pete, that is a great question. And I have some perspectives on it. I do think that you can get better bang for your buck in many instances by subsidizing micromobility or mass transit rather than putting precious climate dollars into electric vehicles. That said, in this case, beggars can't be choosers. This is a huge and hugely transformative climate bill. And I'm just thrilled to see Senator Manchin and Senator Schumer uh, working to push it through the Senate. Hopefully we get sufficient support in the House and hopefully this will become the law of the land and we'll be looking towards kind of a, a, a bold new generation of climate-centered industrial policy in the United States. One last question for you, Levi. Uh, you mentioned your book, The Great Race, which is terrific, and we could probably do a whole podcast on, on the book itself, and maybe we should do that at some point. I like that you closed that book with a, an idea that you know, it was easy to imagine American automakers falling behind for a variety of reasons. Uh, and I think that probably has come to pass in the seven years since your book was published. So where is the United States in terms of catching up? And does this legislation succeed in catching up America? Such a good question. I mean, I would say today we are trailing our industrial competitors by a good margin. You know, China is way out in front of the United States. Europe is way out in front of the United States. You know, if you look at Korea, you know, Korea is building terrific electric vehicles today. Japan, interestingly, is, is not doing as well as it was 10 or, or 15 years ago in terms of leading the EV revolution. But I do think that one of the reasons America has fallen behind is an absence of supported policy for electrification. And I would predict that the IRA would catapult the United States back up towards the front of the pack. I can't say that we would be beating China. China now has about 80% of the electric vehicle charging infrastructure in the world. America has about 4% of the electric vehicle charging infrastructure in the world. So we are about a half decade behind them in terms of deployments of some of these critical technologies. China has deployed over 2,000 battery swapping stations, which is another critical technology of the future. In the United States, we're just getting started with battery swapping stations, and we need supportive policy for that as well. But within the IRA, you can very clearly see the ingredients that will be necessary to supercharge a domestic EV ecosystem. And that's kind of a soup to nuts system, you know, where we're going to mine the critical materials necessary to manufacture batteries, to package them in battery modules, to put together those components 
into an electric vehicle to utilize those vehicles in a variety of different use cases across the economy and at end of life to recapture the value of those materials and put them into a circular economy that starts the whole process again. So it's just great stuff. And, and we hope that it passes full Congress and, and that it becomes law because it's going to mean a lot of progress really fast for the United States EV manufacturing system. Great. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and perspective today, Levi. It's been great having you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. We barely talked about Levi's book. We barely discussed his first company, Iris Engines. We didn't at all talk about his run for Congress in Colorado a few years back. And we did not talk about how he taught himself Chinese and Japanese just so he could better study electrification from a global perspective. If there's ever a case for a sequel in short order on the Shift podcast, I think this is it. Uh, we will get to work on that and hopefully be in touch with Levi about a future appearance. In the meantime, if you liked this conversation in particular and you like the Shift podcast overall, leave us a review and subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That is it for today. A big thank you again to Levi. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week discussing automotive cybersecurity. We'll catch you then.